You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Psalm 133. It is on page 625 of the Church Bible, goes on to page 626. This is the 14th in a series of 15 studies in the Psalms of Ascent. Occasionally it gets bounced or bumped to Sunday morning uh, as today. Uh, We are going to be looking with David at Psalm 58 tonight. Uh, These Psalms uh, written probably by different people at different times, uh, but the Psalter as you know, did not fall from heaven as a complete book of 150 psalms. Surprising, actually, the number of people who think that's what must have happened. They were written in different experiences at different times, and somebody somewhere at some time brought these 150 psalms together, ordered them into five books, and just at this point in the Psalter, put together 15 psalms that could be easily memorized, most of them are short, and used by pilgrims uh, on their way to Jerusalem. And while they were in Jerusalem, on the three occasions of the year when the people of God gathered for festival. Uh, You know the Old Testament did not give people holidays it gave people holy days. And uh, it's rather an attractive thought that holy days were actually the best holidays. And they went to Jerusalem in crowds, in, in thousands. At the time of Jesus, some people have thought there might have been a million people in Jerusalem, vast concourses of people there to praise God. And uh, we are to imagine Uh, these folks. They've been under the ministry of God's Word. They've had leisure to talk together. They've been encouraged by these Psalms to think about God's ways in their own lives and uh, God's ways with His people. And we are now to imagine they're, they're almost at the end. And Psalm 133 is the penultimate of these Psalms. It is a song of ascents, as the others bear that title. This is a David psalm, and here are its words. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured out on the head, poured down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord better commands His blessing, for there the Lord commands His blessing, even life forevermore. One of the expectations that the compiler of this 15 Psalm hymn book had was that the experience of God's people would be wonderfully transformed by being together. You ought to leave a church service 
feeling different from the way you felt when you came into the church service. Often, of course, we come in not feeling anything, and we leave not feeling anything, and we assume that the reason is the ministers, the bands, the people, when often the reason is ourselves. There is a wonderful story about uh, William Wilberforce taking his friend, the younger Pitt, the prime minister, to hear one of Wilberforce's uh, favorite preachers. And as they left church, Wilberforce was in raptures about the message about Christ that he had heard. And you can imagine how his heart sank when Pitt turned to him and said, Wilberforce, what was he so excited about? And of course, if you were prime minister, you would assume the fault was somebody else's, when in actual fact, it was your own spiritual deadness and your own spiritual blindness. You assumed that you could see when you were actually blind. You assumed you could hear when you were actually deaf. And you assumed that your own understanding of things was right when you were looking through dark-tinted spectacles at the worship of God. But after several days together, uh, if any of God's people felt that kind of distance, God was beginning to squeeze it out of them. And we are to anticipate them beginning to go home now and turning to one another and saying, that was really great, wasn't it? And that's the the picture here, the, the psalm is obviously about the unity of the fellowship of God's people. And it contrasts very much with where the psalmist began. The psalmist began in his home village. He was one of the few committed believers. He was a man of peace, but there was agro in the village. There was hostility against God. There was hostility against Him. There was hostility in family life. There was alienation. Uh, It was society. And he is grieved and discouraged. And he needs an older pilgrim to encourage him to, that the Lord will look after him on the pilgrimage and bless him. And now here he is, and the atmosphere is totally transformed. Actually, one of the great things about the demise of the merely professing Christian church in the 21st century, most denominations in Scotland have halved their membership during my lifetime. No particular connection between the two, while the population has increased. But one of the good things about that is that it's possible to see the difference between the church and the world, and not to be less possible to confuse the very atmosphere of life in the church from the atmosphere of life in the world. If you have never been to church before, if you've never been in a group of people this size all of whom or most of whom trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ, you ought to go away from a group like this saying, 
That was a very different experience. Yes, there were hymns. Yes, there was a sermon. Yes, of course, there were the religious bits. But that was a different kind of group of people with the, by contrast with the people I live with, I work with, I have in my neighborhood a sweetness and a grace and a love and a mutual affection. None of the parents worrying about who was with their children. And that's the kind of atmosphere that he has enjoyed, and he's, he's rejoicing now in the fellowship that God has created by His presence among His people. And you'll notice that the psalm divides really into three sections. First of all, in verse 1, he gives us a simple description of his experience. Then in verses 2 and the beginning of verse 3, he gives us word pictures to help us to feel his experience. And then at the end of the psalm, he gives us the explanation for his experience. Why was this so different from what he'd experienced in his home village? Well, look at the way he describes his experience in verse 1. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. He means not just natural brothers, the nuclear family. This is the Bible's way of describing the people of God. We belong to the same family. We have, in a sense, spiritually the same genetic structure. We have the same older brother, our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the same heavenly Father, and we love Him and trust Him. And He is saying how good and pleasant it is when brothers, believers, live together in this unity of fellowship. Uh, good. Um, I am a recovering philosophy student, and I uh, remember the grim days of listening to professors lecture on how throughout the centuries, from the days of the Hellenistic philosophy and the, and the academies in Athens, intellectuals have discussed and debated what do we mean when we say something is good? Right through to the 20th century philosophers, some of whom thought good just means I like it and I don't care whether you like it. It's a purely subjective judgment. And if you surveyed the history of philosophy, some of the greatest minds, most penetrating and analytical intellects and read everything that they had written uh, you might murmur with the author of Ecclesiastes that it's all a chasing after wind, vanity of vanities. They, they, they draw their salaries, they sit in their darkened rooms, they write their articles usually with awful touches of humor. And after all these years, they can't give a simple one-sentence answer to the question, what do we mean when we say something is good. The interesting thing is that everybody who used this psalm could have told you what the good really is. Why? Because from childhood they had been taught to memorize the first chapter of the book of Genesis. And I'd heard so often that when God made things, they were 
good. That is to say, they were the way God designed them. They functioned the way God wanted them to function and meant them to function. And of course, we still use the term good in a kind of uh, adulterated sense, uh, 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 a sense in which we, you know, we we see somebody do something, we say, that was, that was good. We mean it was well done. Uh, if we play golf, which if you don't, don't start playing it, and we hear that sound, or if you play cricket and you hear that unusual sound that a perfect strike or hit makes, or even if you played hockey, when, when you caught the center of the hockey stick, the sound was different. And you thought, oh, that, that was good. It was the way it was intended to be. And that's his experience. That's his experience of church. He's able to say, this was good. What does he mean? He means that during these days with his fellow believers, he had discovered life, family life, the way it was meant to be. He had tasted the taste he had felt the atmospheres. He had, he had sensed the aroma of what God meant our life together to be. And it was dramatically different from anything he experienced anywhere else. And he was able to say how, how good it is when God's people are together like that. Oh, you know, the ordinary family may have occasions like that. It was really good to be together. Actually, that's not largely my experience of the world. On the big occasions of life, weddings and funerals, it's very often not good to be together. Why? Because as this psalmist is anticipating his experience, he sees the difference between a community that God has begun to forge and form and transform and any community that lacks that. But when we say something is good because it functions the way God meant it to function, actually, if you're not a Christian, that sounds rather metallic and may even be irritating. Because if you're not a friend of God, if you're not a lover of God, if you're not a, a, a truster of God, uh, then how God means things to function usually spells misery in your emotions. You don't want God to be Lord over your life because that would spell misery for your life. Uh, you see, uh, that's like uh, I noticed that Doctor Who has returned at last with a Scottish Doctor Who traveling through space and time. Uh, you look at the TARDIS, what is it? It's a, it's a bashed-up old police box. must be worth a fortune because you don't see them any longer. But you go inside, and it's larger inside than it was outside. It's full of all this cutting-edge stuff that can take you, as it were, to any part of the universe, to any place in history. And actually, the kingdom of God, the fellowship of God's people, is just like that. If you're outside, it looks bashed up and bruised, and nowadays small. 
kind of antique, like something that you might see in, uh, in the museum. But when you're inside, it's far larger on the inside. It's connections on the inside that you never see on the outside. And it connects you to every part of the world and every part of history because it brings you into this family of God. It is, it is glorious on the inside. And if you don't think that, the reason is because you're on the outside. And that's why he adds. You see, the words good and pleasant can be used as synonyms of each other, but they're not synonyms of each other here. Pleasant tells you what good feels like, what good tastes like what the atmosphere of this fellowship really is like. I wonder if you know uh, Isaac Watts' um, paraphrase of one of these psalms, we are marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. It has a verse in it that we may no longer sing in the presence of dentists, doctors, and children, all in the same room. And the verse goes like this, the hill of Zion yields a thousand sacred sweets before we reach the heavenly ground or walk its golden streets. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. Ah, yes, pie in the sky when you die. No, no. It's pie in the sky when you die and pie in the sky all the way there. A thousand sacred sweets doesn't mean jelly babies. It means delights. It means pleasures. Often think of that hymn of Newton, solid joys and lasting treasures. And I always have to stop and think, did he say solid joys and lasting treasures, or did he say solid joys and lasting pleasures? Actually, he said treasures. I personally wish he had written pleasures because it's true. That's what it means for this man to have been together with God's people. A thousand sacred sweets. Happened to have three email conversations in the last week with men I've known for over 40 years, most of my Christian life. Actually, come to think of it, it's almost 50 years most of my Christian life. And as I wrote to them, I thought this. I thought back to the very early days, coming from a home where no one went to church, thinking about my friends in school, and wondering what it would feel like if I trusted and followed Christ. What would it feel like to lose my friends? And being held on by Jesus' words in Luke's gospel, no one gives up anything for my sake and the gospel's without receiving a hundredfold in this life. Yes, with persecutions, but a hundredfold in this life, as well as eternal life in the world to come. And thinking, I don't think that any of my friends who might have begun to badmouth me as a teenager because I'd become a Christian could have any conception of the quality and number of the friends that God gives in return. That's what it is. 
how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. I can, I can almost imagine Mary and Joseph on their way down from Jerusalem when they've taken the 12-year-old Jesus on the first time to the pilgrimage into Jerusalem, and I can almost imagine them bumping into each other after they'd been with the men and the women folk and saying, boy, it was really great to have taken Jesus for this one, wasn't it? And then saying, where is Jesus? So, he gives us a description of his experience, and then he uses word pictures. These Psalms are poetry. Poetry is meant to paint things in pictures that not only illumine our minds, help us to see things from fresh angles, but also help us to feel what it is that the poet, in this case, the psalmist, feels. So, he gives us a couple of word pictures to help us feel the emotions and the memories of the picture. And uh, both of those pictures are fairly alien to us. They probably aren't the descriptions you would use for the service here this morning. Imagine there's a film crew from uh, Radio Tay, well, that's not a film crew, BBC Scotland, uh, and they're waiting outside. They've, uh, David has been upsetting people again, and they're waiting outside, and, and they come up to you with the microphone. They've sent the young reporter who's just learned how to nod no matter what you're saying, and they say, what was it actually like in there? And you say, oh, it was like the oil flowing down over Aaron's beard, <laughs> over his robes. And yes, 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 yes. And, and what was that like? Oh, it was as though the dew from Mount Harmon was falling on Zion, and it's, it's back to you at the studio, you know. <laughs> Who are these wacky people? But... Um, you know, these are, these, are like, these, are like, these are like illustrations uh, from the Dandy and the Bino, if you're from Dundee or Scotland or any self-respecting part of the English-speaking world. <laughs> and, and they're actually very clear. The first one is drawn from the liturgy of the temple, and it's drawn from one of the most sacred events in all of the history of God's people when Aaron was clothed for the first time with the robes of the high priest. And remember the ephod that he wore and the turban? And then there was this breastplate that had uh, 12 precious stones on it, each one representing one of the tribes of Israel. And he had these two precious stones on his shoulders that would hold the strings for the breastplate, and there were six tribes' names engraved in one and six in the other. And then there was this anointing oil uh, that's uh, described in, in Exodus chapter 30, I think. And one of the things that's said about this anointing oil, you're, you're given the composition. And it must have been a powerfully beautiful aroma and then they were told they were to use this for no other function than anointing the most sacred things in the worship of God. And the last of these was the anointing of the high priest. Now, think about the picture. Think about the anointing oil and its aroma. 
and it's going down over Aaron's head onto his beard. Nothing against bearded men here. Uh, it's, uh, it's part of the liturgy. And then it goes down over his robes. Can you, can you feel it? Can you feel it? Can you watch it going over those precious stones that have your name written on them if you're part of God's Old Testament people? And then dripping down and flowing over. What's it saying? It's saying that the it's saying that the access this man alone has to the presence of God. Do you know only the high priest went into the holiest place of all and only once a year? It's saying the anointing this man has that gives him access to the presence of God and that aroma that in a sense was to was to tell you how pleasant it must be to be in God's presence comes down and flows over the whole of God's people. That's what, that's what he's saying. He's saying, it was as though I myself were in the holy of holies. And of course, ultimately, as David would have had only a tiny sense, ultimately, this is meant to be a picture of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Like Hebrews 8 says, we have this priest ourselves in our church. And the anointing oil, which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit that flowed over him, has flowed down from him to us. And now, because our names are engraved on his heart, it's as though he were saying to us, you have the same access to my Father as I myself have. And when you approach him, you may use the same term to describe him as I use. You may call him Abba, Father. Now, you see, to me, it's one of the, it's one of the big distinguishing marks of a believer in distinction from somebody who isn't a believer, that the instinct of the real Christian is to say, Abba, Father. Now, somebody who's a pretend Christian can say the Lord's Prayer. I, I understand that. But somebody who's a pretend Christian, when the crisis comes, when push comes to shove, does not characteristically say, Oh, Father. What that person characteristically says, How do I know? Because I've heard it. That person characteristically says, At his or her best. Oh, God! And so there's all the difference in the world. And that, that's exactly what he's experienced. He's experienced all the difference in the world, says Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.14. If anyone is in Christ, if the anointing oil has flowed over Christ to them, if their names are written, as it were, on the jewels on his breastplate and on his shoulders, then if anyone is in Christ, the only way you can describe this is it's a new creation. And then he moves from the liturgy to geography. I'm actually 
better at liturgy than I am at geography, but I think you can trust me at least on this, that what he's saying, it's as though the dew, the heavy dew that falls on Mount Hermon, which is a hundred miles north, it's as though you, being here, it's as though I woke up in the morning, and here in the relatively dry territory of Jerusalem, it was as though the place was covered in the morning dew of the mountains of Hermon. Now, actually, the, the scholars have had difficulty with this, uh, so you need to think this through yourself. But I remember years ago, we were living in Glasgow at the time. It was the summer. It was a stuffy summer, a dusty summer, and I happened to be in the Cairngorms, and I happened to be reading this psalm. And I just had one of those moments when I thought, oh, wouldn't it be great if I could just take this, the, the, the clean air, the, the beauty of its aroma, the sense of relaxation. Uh, obviously, I was just about to go back to Glasgow, which incidentally I love. <laughs> and I thought, wouldn't it be great if you could have this in Glasgow. And I think that's what he's saying. Maybe he'd been on Mount Hermon on vacation, who knows? But he's saying this, this is as though an experience that belongs to another place altogether could, could be experienced right here. And that's what the fellowship of God's people is. It's the experience that actually belongs to another place taking place right here. It is the New Testament's way of putting this is when you are in Christ, especially when you're together in Christ, then it's as though you were caught up into another realm, a heavenly realm. Indeed, Hebrews 12 says, you know, when you come to church, you don't go to Mount Zion on earth or Mount Sinai where the Exodus people went. But when you come to church, you go to the heavenly Zion. Um, you're not just rehearsing for the worship of heaven. You are, you are actually in an antechamber sharing in the worship of heaven. You've come to, to, to the saints who are gathered in festal joy. You've, you've come to the spirits of just men made perfect. It's as it's as though there's just a very thin curtain between our assembly here and that assembly there, and you've come to Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of a new and better covenant, and it's all yours now. It's all yours now in Jesus Christ. Actually, the way John puts it in 1 John 3 verse 1, you, you know the, the text, what, what manner of love is this that the Father has bestowed upon us. Do, do you know the Greek word that's used there? Literally, I mean, right at its root, it means, from what other country does this love come? And that's what it means when the people of God are, are gathered together. We are breathing the, the fresh air of the presence of the Lord. We are we're breathing the fresh air of heaven, and we're, we're strengthened. The, the pollutants 
Don't, don't you experience that? Is, is this just some nutty psalmist who's having an experience no one else in the history of the church? Is it? No, no, no. This is, this is the experience of God's people in every place, at every age, every stage. You're breathing in the fresh air of the wind of heaven and the, the pollutants. I mean, you even feel cleaner. That's what he's saying. You see things more clearly. You're surrounded by people, your friends, maybe, maybe made it in this world, and uh, they're not only filthy rich, but they are filthy livers, and may have filthy livers in addition. And you wonder if it's all worthwhile. Unlike the psalmist in Psalm 73, you go into the presence of God, and you see you see where that leads, and you see where this leads. And you're a new person, reinvigorated. That's what he's saying. So, in verse 1, he describes the experience. In verses 2 and into the beginning of 3, he gives us these word pictures to help us to feel his experience. And then at the end, he gives us the ultimate explanation for the experience. And, and it's really very simple. Uh, if you've been with us in the evening, you'll, you'll know by now, you'll be fed up with me saying that behind all of these psalms is the benediction the high priest pronounced on the people. Numbers 6, 24 to 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Those words, those ideas run through all of those psalms. That's what he's here for. And now he's saying that's actually, that's the explanation of all this. It's not, there is not a human explanation to this. There's only a heavenly explanation, a divine explanation. For there the Lord commanded his blessing, even life forevermore. Because you see, he's He's seen where true pleasures lie. He's not only seen where true pleasures lie, but he's, he's sensed what an earlier Sam had taught him, that at his right hand there are pleasures forevermore. It, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be with God's people, worshiping the Heavenly Father, fellowship together things being good, that is, things being the way God meant them to be, not yet perfectly, but nevertheless really. I've often stood at church doors, usually been Presbyterian churches, and people have said, I suppose, as a word of encouragement as they've left, I really enjoyed that today. And if they're real Presbyterians, they put their hands to them, I say, oh, I shouldn't say that, should I? shouldn't say I really enjoyed it today. Don't come to church to enjoy it. And my grip tightens. <laughs> and I look them in the eye, trying to twinkle. <laughs> and I say, why and ever not? Isn't that what we mean when we say that man's chief end is to glorify him and to enjoy him? forever. And then you see it just follows from that that uh, 
that kind of fellowship, that kind of church, well, you, you can't keep that atmosphere from affecting other people. That's why the Lord Jesus, when He prayed, He, he prayed He prayed that this psalm would be true of the Christian church. He said, Father, here are are the brothers for whom I'm going to die, these men and women for whom I'm going to die. Father, this is… Father, I know this is a big ask, but Father, I want them to taste at their level through me what we taste at our level as the eternal Father and the eternal Son and Father. If you, will, if you will grant them that blessing by sending to each of my children the same Holy Spirit that will give them, as it were, the same genetic code spiritually, if you will do that then, Father, the next thing I pray for is that as a result of that, the world will believe that you sent me into the world to be the Savior. Now, why? Why does that happen? Because if you're an outsider and you begin to taste what the insiders are tasting, begin to sense the the clean air and the wonder of the dew from heaven falling upon God's people and the family life that they have, and if you look down the street and you, and you look at the fruit of the rejection of the Christian faith, I don't just mean from the tax dollars it's costing, but if you look at the destruction of family life, the alienation that there is between married couples and couples and their children and children and their parents and children with one another, and then, yes, no, the church isn't perfect, but you come in and you, you say to yourself, from what world does this come into a world like ours? Wherever it comes from, I need to pay a visit. And many of us in this room, and we wouldn't all put it that way, but in one way or another, it was because we sensed this dew from heaven, this oil coming from Jesus to somebody we knew, that even if it was kicking and screaming, we knew that was what we needed and that was what we wanted. And so he says at the end, the reason for all this is because there the Lord, and again, the NIV, I think, fails us here. The Lord didn't just bestow the blessing. The Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. I came to a church in Scotland years ago, and one of my associates came to me one day he said, Sinclair, just help me to explain this. Says, People are asking me a question. I don't know what the answer is. I said, well, what's the question? He said, they're all asking me, why does he, moi, why does he keep his eyes open when he pronounces the benediction? I said, well, here's the answer. You say to them, how do you know he keeps his eyes open <laughs> when he pronounces the benediction? And then, when they've admitted their eyes were open, you say, 
I think it's because he believes that the benediction, benediction is not the minister's wishful thinking. The benediction is God's command from heaven. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. Maybe you need to keep your eyes open for the benediction. And if you've been keeping them shut for the last 70 years in your life, keep your spiritual eyes open and remember that blessing is not wishful thinking on God's part. Blessing is what He is guaranteed to give to His people in Jesus Christ. As Paul says at the beginning of Ephesians, He has blessed us in Christ and the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing. Maybe if you're not charismatic and have never done it, at least inwardly you want to give me it and give me more. Well, are you inside? Can you taste this? There's only way to get inside if you're outside is through Christ. You know that, don't you? Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the riches of your grace in Jesus Christ. We pray that you would command your blessing upon every single one of us here. We it is our wishful thinking. And even those of us who are believers, it can be wishful thinking for us too because we see so little sign of it, we think. But command your blessing on us and then open our eyes to show us where it is that that blessing falls. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.